0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao. Today, I want to revisit an interview I did in April 2019 with Dan Berkowitz, who is a commissioner of the US Commodity Futures Trading Commission, known as the CFTC. As you know, over the last two years, we at Policy Punchline, have had the distinct privilege to speak uh, with a number of important regulators of the finance industry. Uh, For the SEC, we recently just talked to the co-director of Division of Enforcement, Stephanie Avakian. For central banking, we talked to a former president of the New York Fed, Bill Dudley, and we recently released this interview with the uh, former vice uh, Fed chair, Alan Blinder, about inequality and financialization. Uh, We've also spoken to a number of former uh, treasury officials However, we're missing out on a very important branch of the financial regulation, namely uh, the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission, CFTC. Uh, Last April, we invited Commissioner Dan Berkowitz for a talk on campus titled Disarming Financial Weapons of Mass Destruction, Implementing the Dodd-Frank Act. For various reasons of delay, we never got the chance to release this great interview and I'm very sorry about that. Uh, But Commissioner Dan Berkowitz and I had a wonderful chat about Uh, the history of the Dodd-Frank Act, how it was a law established after the financial crisis to address some of the causes of the 2008 crisis, uh, and how CFTC plays an important role in enforcing this legislation. Uh, We talked about the efficacy and work of the FSOC, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, uh, established by the Dodd-Frank Act as an interagency regulatory framework to help identify some of the risks that affected the financial industry. Uh, we also discussed issues from regu- how, to, how to regulate cryptocurrency to uh, the revolving door of the government. So we really covered a lot of ground, and I think it's a great time to revisit this conversation. This interview was actually the first podcast interview that Commissioner Dan Berkowitz had ever done. And he told me that after he finished the interview, but I couldn't tell at all because he's such a skilled interviewee and gives really interesting stories and responses to some of the difficult questions that we went through. So I sincerely hope you will enjoy this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today, Commissioner Oh,
1: Thank you very much, uh, Tiger. It's a great honor to be here. be back
0: at Princeton again. Yeah, because you went here back in 1978, or that's when you graduated. That's right, graduated in 78, a lifetime ago. Awesome. Uh, So many of our listeners might not be too familiar with CFTC. Would you Mm -hmm. mind giving us a quick introduction on what exactly CFTC does? Uh, As our name might indicate, we are the Commodity Futures
1: Trading Commission. We regulate futures contracts in commodities. Uh, Since the financial crisis uh, and the subsequent Dodd-Frank legislation, which we may talk about a little bit in more detail today, we also regulate the swaps market. So these are swaps and futures and options are derivative uh, products that are used for risk management purposes. And if you uh, trade or use uh, futures or swaps or or options in the
0: United States, uh, you're subject to CFTC regulation. Commodities, futures, swaps—those all sound like abstract financial terms that are kind of distant to people's lives. That pe- people um, don't feel like they have an immediate impact on their life, do they? Like, how do you think uh, they could have an impact on Americans' daily lives? Um, they are—they are extremely important. This is not something that,
1: as a consumer, you or I would use in, in, our, in our typical uh, daily. Uh, uh, activities, but they're used by American businesses primarily to manage their risks that they're faced. And uh, this actually goes back 100 and about 150 years ago in, in the agricultural markets. Uh, people buy and sell goods. Um, they have to plan their activities in the future. If you're going to make a car and sell a car, you're going to need to buy steel for the car. You're going to need to uh, buy a, a palladium and platinum to put in your catalytic converters. And to avoid being subject to all the price fluctuations, you might want to lock in a price for all those components. And you might want to lock in a price for, if you're an oil refiner, for the price, uh, you want to lock in the price for crude oil that you're buying and the price of gasoline that you're subsequently selling. And you can go to these markets, the futures markets, where you can buy a contract for future delivery for six months out, a year out. And you can lock in a price, foreign and advance for that. So American businesses find these types of futures contracts very useful. A swap is really very much like a futures contract. Generally, swaps started out as being individualized contracts rather than a standardized contract that you would uh, trade on an exchange. But they're very similar in purpose. You pay
0: pay some money today and you get something at, at a future date. Got you. Uh, you're giving a talk later this afternoon at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy of Finance. And this talk is titled Disarming Financial Weapons of Mass Destruction, Implementing the Dodd-Frank Act. Um, Since most of our listeners won't get to be there, would you mind giving us a quick interview of your talk? Sure. Um, The
1: Dodd-Frank Act, which is in the title of uh, of my talk, Was the law that was established after the financial crisis to address some of the causes of the financial crisis? There were many causes to the financial crisis in 2008, 2009. Uh, There was a housing bubble. Uh, There was a lot way too much credit extended to people in the housing market when the housing market collapsed, that triggered uh, a, cha- a number of- a chain reaction of dominoes falling through the economy, small institutions, large institutions uh, going under. And they had as uh, a number of these institutions had these risk management contracts, had these swaps uh, and because of their um, contracts with other people, if one of the parties went down, that endangered the other party to the transaction. Um, it swaps, unregulated swap. the swaps market at the time of the crisis was unregulated. Congress passed a law in 2000 uh, providing that the CF, neither the CFTC nor the Securities Ex- Exchange Commission could regulate these types of instruments. In the aftermath of the crisis, there was a Presidential Inquiry Commission And one of the causes, certainly not the only cause, but a contributing cause to the crisis was the lack of regulation in in the swaps market. So the Dodd-Frank Act was enacted to put in place a system of regulation where the institutions and the businesses who were entering into these types of contract would be subject to some type of regulation federal oversight. Basically, three major components. We would regulate the major dealers in these instruments, the major swap dealers. We'd regulate the markets that they were traded in, so you couldn't just trade them willy-nilly. You would be subject to a system of regulation somewhat like the futures market was always regulated, and there would be a system of reporting and record keeping, so there would be some type of um, uh, ability of the federal government to see what type of transactions people were entering into. Plus, I should say, the fourth element was stronger enforcement authorities by the federal government uh, to enforce violations of, of the laws that it would put into place under the Dodd-Frank Act. Uh, We are now, the Dodd-Frank Act was passed in 2010. Uh, The CFTC, I was there uh, at the time. Uh, We spent several years promulgating regulations to implement the statute. The regulations really became effective at the end of 2012. People had to start following those regulations in 2013. So now we're at 2019. We have five, six, seven years under our belt of implementation of the Dodd-Frank Act, and my talk this afternoon is basically going to be, how well have we done? What has the law accomplished? Are the markets safer? In my opinion, yes, they're much safer now than they than they were uh, back in the crisis, uh, at the time of the crisis. Uh, the markets are regulated. We have federal oversight of the markets. There's uh, uh, regulation of the dealers. We have 100 registered swap dealers. Oh, these are large banks that generally that enter into these transactions. They have risk management systems. They have record keeping systems. There are protections when they enter into a transaction with another person, with a business. There's disclosure requirements. They have to tell the other side about the risks of the transactions. Uh, We have a strong enforcement authority for any violations of the statute. There's more competitive uh, pricing of these instruments as a result of a lot of the transparency requirements that the Dodd-Frank Act put into place. People are getting better prices. The businesses that use these transactions are getting better prices, lower prices, lower transaction costs as a result of the statute. So I believe overall the Dodd-Frank Act and the regulations have reduced the the systemic risks and, and, and provided better pricing for the uh, entities that are using these financial instruments. Having said that, there's a number of challenges we have in implementing the law going forward, which which I will will talk about. So that's sort of generally what I will talk about. It's a very large subject, um, uh, and each one of those areas one can go into all sorts of rabbit holes of detail
0: on. Uh, You mentioned how consumers and um, mainly institutions are getting better price, uh, better priced futures and contracts, and Things are getting safer now. There's better regulation. Uh, But I'm very curious. There there are critics of the Dodd-Frank Act that basically argue that the act hurts the competitiveness of U.S. firms relative to their international counterparts. And it puts a huge burden on smaller financial institutions. So I'm kind of curious to hear your thoughts on whether the tightening regulation actually – Contracted
1: sure the, the, sure, sure, the st- sure there there's many Dodd Frank Act uh, uh, had 16 titles the, the entire statute had 16 titles the title that the CFTC implements which was the agency I work uh, uh, for we were title technically title seven one part of that 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 larger statute. Uh, Dodd-Frank also, in addition to regulating the swap markets, imposed capital requirements on banks, provided for hedge fund registration, regulated uh, uh, the institutions that, that involve Fannie and Freddie in the housing market, uh, brought uh, insurance products under a under, uh, type of regulation. There, there are a lot of aspects. When people talk about Dodd-Frank being too burdensome and too broad, um, that can cover a lot, a lot of topics. Um, My area, generally the Title VII area, uh, I think there is a fairly broad consensus that it's working pretty well. Not everybody is happy with every aspect of it and certain uh, entities want us to fine tune this part of it or, or that part of it. But generally, we haven't seen much interest at all in reopening Title Seven. People on the banking side, in terms of the capital regulations, that's been a much more controversial area, and that's where some of the, the issues that you've mentioned in terms of or the capital requirements are too too stringent. It's come up in, in the context of the banking regulations, which is a different part of Dodd-Frank. On the part of Dodd-Frank that we're implementing Title Seven, I think there's a general consensus that Title VII it's 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 working well enough. We don't want to we don't want to open it up and create uncertainty. People have invested a lot of money, in in implementing it. And while the regulators, such as our agency, people are asking us to fine tune parts of it, they haven't been going up to Congress and seeking any major revisions in Title Seven.
0: So when we talk about Dodd Frank Act or uh, whatever the implications it may have on the financial system, it's. Uh, probably not nuanced enough when we talk about those things, and specifically when we talk about commodity futures swaps. Correct. Um, when we zoom in on Title Seven, correct. It's a different landscape, exactly. Than, than exactly. What, what exactly. We'll see. Awesome. Uh, so there's a lot of buzz about you know rolling back Dodd Frank Act, and the Congress has actually already made a lot of moves. So has that impacted Title Seven, this um, the commodity futures swaps? And Not
1: legislatively. We haven't right. seen any legislation uh, really to repeal or, or what I would call roll back Title 7 That's been pretty much intact. The the legislative initiatives deal with other sections uh, of the statute. Now, in our space, in Title Seven, what people are asking us to do, and the Securities Exchange Commission is also invi- involved in Title Seven they They want us to fine tune some of the regulations now what fine tuning is can be in the eye of the beholder as well what somebody else, what to one person might be a fine tune might be to another person a rollback right. uh, so it depends how you uh, characterize it and how you view the glass but I, I think it's fair to say there hasn't been really any overall advocacy and in, in in over um, in in, in uh, overhauling uh, Title Seven or the regulations.
0: So down the road, do you see any more specific nuanced changes that that you foresee could very well happen in in the next couple of years? Well, I think fundament-
1: fundamentally, I think Title Seven and the implementation is is, is sound, uh, but. Through no fault of of the the agency when it initially implemented the regulations, market change, the economy changes, circumstances change. What what may be appropriate in 20 2012 or 2013, as markets change and the um, the use of these instruments uh, changes. Um, there may be there may be changes changes that are, are are warranted with that additional experience. One of the areas that I've been particularly concerned with, as I mentioned, I think the statute and the current framework has done a pretty good job of fostering competition in the swaps market. Uh, swaps are much more competitively traded now, with more transparency, more competition between banks offering these products to customers. Right now, a customer can can uh, get multiple quotes from different banks at the same time who are competing with each other for that customer's business. That wasn't generally how the market was prior to Dodd-Frank. So there's competition, and that's good for the customers because you're getting banks competing with each other for the customer's business in an open and a transparent way. That's good. Uh, And so I think from that perspective, the, the customers are getting better prices, and their transaction costs have come down. That's been pretty well documented. If you talk to the customers, they're fairly well satisfied. However, uh, there's not that many uh, people out there who are competing for the business. There's very few banks involved in this business. It's not a broad market. We've improved competition, but we haven't gotten the broadest market uh, as uh, maybe possible or as frankly as even people thought envisioned back in 2012 or 2013. So I wouldn't call it a repeal. I would call it further improvements in the market that we could, should look for ways to foster
0: additional competition, get more competitors into our markets. Uh, it's interesting because um, I read somewhere that certain critics say that CFTC had built this uh, reputation as an, uh, quote-unquote, overly aggressive watchdog uh-huh. of the financial markets in the uh-huh. decade after the financial crisis. Uh, what do you think of this comment? Because based on what you just said, it seemed that there is more competition and, and the prices have come down and people are happy with it. So so where is the com- complaint coming so, so, from? So uh, there, it was a sea change at the time.
1: Uh, Let's go back uh, a number of years. Uh, this really goes back to the 1990s, even, <laughs> and around 2000. If you remember back in times of the Internet bubble, as these markets were really taking off in the 80s and 90s, these swap products uh, really are of relatively recent vintage, uh, ba- basically starting in the early 1980s, and the markets were growing in the 1990s. In the 1990s, um, the economy was doing, it was just gangbusters. But then we had the internet bubble. We had the first bubble. Uh, prior to that bubble, though, as the markets were doing great, there were all these new uh, innovative products and, and uh, uh, American technology was doing great all globally. And we we're in the midst of this internet bubble. The prevailing philosophy was the market's doing great. Let's not get these regulations in the way in the, in the way of the market. So Congress in, in, in 2000 passed a law called the Commodity Futures Modernization Act, which basically told the CFTC, you can't regulate these products. You shall not regulate swaps. <laughs> uh, it was v- best viewed as get government out of the way of the private sector, which is doing all sorts of wonders. Well, a number of events sort of undercut that philosophy, we had, the, first of all, the internet bubble, not really something that was attributable to swaps. But in the subsequent years, we had Enron. The energy markets uh, were uh, somewhat a wild west in, in the year 2000s. And people were using a lot of these unregulated products for uh, nefarious purposes, for manipulation of, of various markets. And so as that decade went on, there began to Grow the feeling of maybe we've gone a little too far in deregulating these these markets, and then the financial crisis hit. And the financial crisis, really, we learned the lesson that you can't have these deregulated markets. If you have a regulated market and a deregulated market, uh, people will tend to use a deregulated, unregulated market, and there's no visibility. And that was presidential commission study, it. and there was a general feeling that uh, swaps the unregulated nature of these markets and contributed to the financial crisis. So the Dodd-Frank Act gave the CFTC authority to regulate these markets. The CFTC was, at the time, pretty aggressive in implementing that regulatory scheme. For the time the the, the Dodd-Frank Act was passed in 2010, to the implementation, the first uh, uh, time the law actually had to be implemented and became effective at the end of 2012, that's just over two years. The CFTC must have passed about, we did about 50 regulations at that time, and entities that for several decades before had been unregulated all of a sudden now uh, were subject to CFTC regulation, A. A regulatory agency that grew up in agricultural markets and primarily had been concerned with just futures contracts traded on futures exchanges, all of a sudden had jurisdiction over a lot of banking activities that had previously been solely overseen by, say, the Federal Reserve or other regulators in a general sense, not these specific activities. So it was was really a sea change in the regulatory landscape as well as the way uh, operations uh, at these institutions had to be done. They were now under a regulated framework where they had been under an unregulated framework previously, and I think that abrupt change in those years led to some of the uh, uh, criticisms that you've, you've mentioned there about the agency being very aggressive. Uh, the agency at the time, uh, the, the, the chairman's view at the time was, we've got a mandate from Congress, To uh, implement this regulatory scheme, and uh, we're going to do it. uh, uh, We're going to do it thoughtfully. We're going to do it carefully, but we we are going to do it uh, as uh, in in an expeditious manner. And the agency did it, and I think that was cause for some of the uh, reaction that you that
0: that you've been that you've mentioned. you mentioned, I think, this idea is pretty fascinating, regulation, how regulation frameworks could cross over each other. Uh, you mentioned a number of agencies, you, you know, the Fed, CFTC, SEC. Uh, you you also served as um, CFTC's deputy representative to the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which is FSOC, established by the Dodd-Frank Act to help identify risks that affect the financial industry. So. I'm quite curious on your thoughts. Out seeing all those regulators come together, is it actually effective for so many different agencies to oversee the market uh, and, and regulation, or, or do you think it's better served if the U.S. establishes a giant regulatory body that includes all those agencies and functions? That's a great. That's a, that's a great question, and I, and
1: I think you know being here at at Princeton and, and, <laughs> and a university, if if. Uh, If one were academically studying this subject uh, and ideally putting something together from scratch, I'm not sure we'd end up with a system that that we have today where we have all these different jurisdictions and you actually need lawyers to be able to tell you who to talk to in the federal government. Uh, I've been on both sides of it I've been in the regulator i was in private practice and i've I've seen both sides and I've seen the frustration in the private sector where people have to go to multiple agencies and figure out who has jurisdiction and then the agencies get into jurisdictional issues and and that's that's difficult for for businesses having said that there's historical reasons why why we are the way we are uh, our markets uh, started off as agricultural markets they're risk management markets. We have the SEC, which are capital formation markets, and there's a different purpose uh, to uh, the securities markets than to the commodities markets. In other countries, the SEC, uh, you would have the equivalent of the SEC and the CFTC in a single agency. Historically, our, our markets developed separately, and the oversight and the congressional jurisdiction developed separately. And the, the, the operational lines that the expertise of people in the profession have developed differently. We don't have in this, we have people who are uh, securities experts, we have people who are commodities experts, and the law these days is so complex that it's you really need experts in, in each separate area. I don't know if today, uh, I don't know if I actually don't think you can combine it all into one agency without some sacrifice of, of quality and, and, and focus. The SEC has a very full plate. We have a very full plate. If we had a single commission that was focused on everything, something would drop off the priority list. Now there's an agency. We, have a, we are an agency that is responsible for our markets. If you have a problem with the futures markets, you can come to us. You don't go to like a securities regulator for it. So there is, there are, there's access, uh, benefits to access to decision makers for, for, for this structure that you can come to the ultimate decision maker, and not have to worry about that. We might be you know, talking about some other issues in some other markets. Um, so there's, there's pros and there's pros and cons. You mentioned the FSOC. One thing that, um, has resulted from Dodd Frank, which I, I've seen. I've seen the transition in, in my my personal experience from dealing with these issues prior to the the crisis and Dodd Frank, and then afterwards. What the FSOC has done. The great benefit from that is that the agencies meet regularly, and we have developed good, strong working relationships and lines of communication, both at the decision maker level and at the staff level. Uh, it, it's pretty simple. Uh, human, you know, basic 101 to meet regularly and talk regularly and establish working <laughs> groups. But it didn't exist. It, it, it just didn't exist. There weren't these vehicles for everybody getting together and and issuing common reports and talking about common priorities. And we're on working groups with these other regulators. The staff relationships are much stronger. You can pick up the phone and call somebody. Oh, I know. Talk to so-and-so over at the Fed or the OCC or the FDIC or the SEC. And those relationships are, are, are strong and they're good. So I think the FSOC has been a great vehicle to develop the, the working relationships uh, between the agencies. And to the extent that there are overlaps or issues the private sector has, uh, wants to cut through red tape, that that facilitates that. Um, it doesn't solve every problem, but the communications and the coordination uh, are, are so much better that, that I think um, – If nothing else, the
0: the FSOC has had that great benefit. Uh, Speaking of cutting through red tapes, I I know this this thing called the KISS Act, the KISS Act, created in uh, early May of 2017, which basically where uh, CFTC seeks public input and staff implementation experience to simplify and modernize the process where uh, you change the rules. So so, uh, recently, the Federal Reserve sort of had initiated a similar initiative called Fed Listens, which is also seeking public opinions uh, on the monetary policy side of things. So do you see strong value in sort of asking market participants and the public for feedback about regulation? Um, And and I'm also curious how much you think um, the the market participants and the public could actually contribute when it Uh, comes to uh, regulatory Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I I think um, uh, that... We learn a lot. Uh, it's, it's, it's our primary source of information, actually, is the market participants and the public. Um, we're a regulatory agency. We sit in a building in Washington, D.C. Um, we really, the most effective way for us to understand the markets is for market participants to come to us and explain explain issues, um, as well as the public. It's, it's not just entities that have financial stakes. It's, it's interested members of the public, academics, it's great to be here and uh, at, at, at Princeton and, and talking to people who might not have a financial stake in a particular issue but can look at it from a public policy perspective and, and, and advise us. So we rely on academics. We rely on market participants. We rely on advocacy groups. Um, we, we get tremendous benefit uh, from all that. I, I like to say that um, people are very familiar with the First Amendment rights, but there's a First Amendment right that people don't uh, are don't necessarily always mention when they think of the First Amendment. When you think of the First Amendment, you think of freedom of speech, freedom of the religion, right to peaceable assembly. But there's another First Amendment right, which is actually pretty basic, and the, that's the right to petition the government for redress of grievances, <laughs> and that's what, and that's what we have, we're 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 there for. I mean, people have a First Amendment right to come to the government and to uh, petition for for grievances, and that's as important as all the other basic First Amendment rights. And so I take that I take that responsibility very very seriously and try to be uh, responsive to the members of the public, and I believe the agency has has a
0: duty to do so as well uh how large of an impact do you think those suggestions will actually have in terms of shaping because the public could tell you something, but maybe uh, through the right tape or or when it actually gets to the decision making level it will already be months away down the road do you do th- sort of see any of those sort of circumstances happen or do you think the i part?
1: i think i uh, I like to think that we are responsive um we we are not we don't operate in a vacuum. We're not a think tank and, and we're sitting there pondering uh, questions of policy in the abstract. We are um, responsive to the Congress. We are responsive to public opinion. Uh, having said that, it's it's independent agencies were set up this way. We are a little bit insulated, okay, by design. When Congress set up these agencies like the CFTC. We're a five-person commission. We're not, although there's. It's set up so that there's no more than three, three members can be of one political party. So you're you're set up with a, members of both political parties, and there's five of us, not a single person. There's there's a little bit of inefficiency, built into the process, and we're independent from the executive branch. We're not subject right, right immediately to the president's control. We have five year terms, um, so, uh, that insulation. Uh, means we're not like, necessarily as fast as responsive as like uh, another agency might be and that's okay let's let's we want some independent thinking about it so there's the balance between being responsive and and having time to th- to think about things and, and get it right because especially in the markets you know emotions or, or events may be moved very rapidly but you want to be able to say okay well let's let's really find out what happened here and get some thought about it and Uh, on it. So eventually, yes, uh, it's not always as fast as market participants want, but I think there's advantages to the the process as it's set up.
0: You put it once uh, before in one of your speeches, you said your approach to shaping regulation in financial markets is if it ain't broken, don't fix it. And so you seem to favor, and also you seem to favor a data-driven approach um, that only makes changes to regulation when there is an empirical evidence that markets aren't function functioning well. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on the importance of data driven policy. What do you see as the dangers in financial markets if we stray away from this empirical approach?
1: Right. So, um, thank you for for bringing that up. So, coming back to the agency, I, I was here in the initial implementation. I was at the agency. Uh, served as general counsel from 2009 to 2013, both during the legislation when we were working with the Congress on the Dodd-Frank legislation on Title Seven, and then those all those regulations that I described to you that we, we put in place afterwards. And then I was private practice for five years and now coming back to the agency. So the question is, when, how do I look at what we've done and when, when do we change? What, How do we know when whether we should be changing a regulation? Is it working well enough? Um, and just because somebody has, the industry's invested a lot of money and time and effort in implementing what we already have. And people may agree or disagree with how we did it initially, but the fact is we are where we are and and the people seem to be pretty satisfied with it. So how do we know? But other people come to us and say, oh, you ought to change this, you ought to change that. I think you got it wrong back then. Well, What circumstances should we be changing our regulation? But we can't just put it on autopilot and say everything is fine. So I think the appropriate way to look at it is say if we have evidence based on the data, how are the markets actually working? What have we learned? in the past five, six, seven years of implementation. Let's look at the record. Let's not just get into a philosophical debate about whether we got it right or we got it wrong five, six, seven years ago, or maybe even the implementation didn't exactly work out the way we thought it might. Oh, you know, we gotta push it in this direction or push it in that direction. Let's see where we are. What is the data telling us? What is the data saying about transaction costs? What is the data saying about competition and and liquidity and depth in these markets and and risk and based on our experience to date what does that tell us about going forward so i trying to trying to look at this problem in a way where it's not sort of subject to individual whim of, of this commissioner or that commissioner recognizing that of course you know i'd like my opinion to prevail but um Let's, let's see if we can have a, an, an approach that will outlast any necessarily particular individual because either anybody on the commission, people come and go. But institutional stability is really important for the, for the market participants. And similarly, if a market participant comes to us or somebody else comes to us and said, Your regulations aren't working, you know, we want to, you should change this or loosen up this or tighten up that. Well, on what basis are you saying that? Is this just a philosophical point, or is there? Can you tell me, point to where, why the market isn't working? Let's let's look at the data. And we have what we have now, which we didn't have back then. When we created this, uh, the the system that we have now, the agency created in that 2010-2012 time frame, I were talking about, it was an unregulated market. There was no no data out there in terms of. What, how the market was working. It was very difficult to get because uh, it was not regulated. But we've got five, six, seven years of data now. So let's look at that data. What does that data tell us?
0: Uh, I'm also very curious about specific ways that CFTC actually engages in to, to regulate the market, to intervene. For example, we all know hedge funds and institutional investors, as you said, often use commodities, futures contracts to hedge, Uh, speculate as well for example recently we're seeing hedge funds and money managers raising bullish wagers on u.s. crude to the highest in months because of the supplies uh from from opec russia iran venezuela are falling. so if you see a situation like that how does cftc actually determine oh this is the moment we should intervene that's just regular just regular speculative activities that 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 are just normal market activities.
1: Typically, we um, we do not have an active role in actually um, in in the market. We it's not our job to um, determine like prices are going too far or, or to that. Our job is to ensure that the markets are fair. That they're free from uh, manipulation or fraud. So, in terms of volatility, uh, we we may have heightened surveillance. We're concerned about a couple of things when market gets volatile. Uh, we're concerned about stability, that there's sufficient liquidity. Uh, we're concerned about the the in, in, if uh, there are abrupt price moves. We have particular heightened concern that the parties uh, ha- have sufficient financial resources. They, there's requirements that they have margin, and we look at make sure that all the parties are, are paying their appropriate margin and have, are meeting all the regulatory requirements in terms of the financial backing for their contracts, not only the parties themselves but the um, the, the parties that they're trading through. There's the Futures Commission merchants who are essentially the people who provide them the clearing services, that, are, that they're financially um, solvent and following all their basic financial requirements as well. Uh, We may, if we see unusual price moves, we may have heightened surveillance in terms of fraud or manipulation. Why is the price moving? The exchanges themselves, uh, like oil, for example, would be Chicago Mercantile Exchange or the Intercontinental Exchange, they will have or may have particular circuit breakers or price limits that prevent two wild price swings if, if there's extreme extreme movements the exchanges may take some action to maybe possibly put a halt on trading or something like that that's done at the exchange level they'll tell us that they're doing that they'll inform us but it's not us we don't actually we're not the ones with the lever on the market that would
0: be the exchanges themselves um, i want to sort of go into talk about the future of, sure. of Not the future contracts, but the the future, your vision. (laughs) Because I read this report that a committee within CFTC is actively hoping to bring about regulatory changes regarding cryptocurrencies and the distributed ledger technology. Uh, I want to hear your thoughts on that. How does cryptocurrency and decentralized technology fall into the realm of CFTC regulation?
1: Great question. We get asked that a lot. And why don't we um, solve all the regulatory <laughs> uncertainty as to you know who has jurisdiction over these products? is is a is a It's a great question. We get that, and the Securities Exchange gets that a, a lot as well. There's two separate issues here. Let me start with cryptocurrency. We are the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. So the first word in there is commodity. So you say, well, what's a commodity? A commodity actually has a defined in the Commodity Exchange Act. Congress has defined a commodity for us. There's a list. We started off regulating corn and wheat and soybeans. So the Commodity Exchange Act defines a commodity as corn, wheat, and soybeans, plus sorghum and a bunch of other agricultural commodities. Those are actually listed in the law as commodities. But then, in 1974, Congress added a very important clause that says, or anything else that is or may be dealt in in the future, uh, futures contracts. Anything that's the subject of a futures contract or may be in the future the subject of a futures contract is defined as a commodity. (laughs) Not a future there. (laughs) Right. It doesn't have to be a physical thing. So an interest rate, because there's futures on interest rate are commodities. a future on the the S&P 500 index, there's futures on the S&P 500 index. The S&P 500 index is a commodity. Oil is a commodity. Um, Cryptocurrency. There's now futures contracts on Bitcoin. So Bitcoin, because there's a futures contract on it, because is a commodity. Interestingly enough, we had a case uh, about a year ago. Somebody, we accused of fraud, and uh, the court subsequently uh, uh, found uh, there was fraud, it was trading a instrument, a cryptocurrency called My Big Coin, And it was just this thing called My Bitcoin, and it wasn't a futures contract on my Bitcoin. They were just trading my Bitcoins. And we uh, brought an action against them for fraud. Uh, we said my Bitcoin is a commodity which gives us jurisdiction because it's virtual currency and virtual currency can have futures contracts on them, as example, Bitcoin. Uh, The defendant in that case said, wait a minute, there's no futures contract on my Bitcoin, you don't have jurisdiction, it's not a commodity because there's not a futures contract on my Bitcoin. And we said, well, there's a futures contract on Bitcoin and so virtual currencies are a commodity. And the court agreed with us, okay? So if you have virtual currencies, the courts have upheld us. Virtual currencies are commodities. Now, vert you can have we've seen in the in the virtual currency world, there's thing called tokens. Now tokens can also be without getting into the whole thing about what's the security on this show. tokens, you know, under certain circumstances, um, can for cryptocurrencies. Or t- crypto tokens or whatever, depends on how they're structured, can also be securities. So there's the question out there. In any given particular case, depending on how this, these things are structured, are they are they securities or are they commodities? Our commodity definition is very broad. If it's a security, it's generally going to be something the SEC deals with. If it's not a security, then we'll have commodity jurisdiction. And sometimes there can be some overlap. So, um,
0: so just a quick follow-up. All the virtual currencies right now are being overseen by... Well, well. So, so
1: we have if you're going to trade a futures contract on it or swap on it, you have to follow very specific rules. We regulate uh, futures contracts and you have to trade them on futures exchanges. If it's just the cryptocurrency itself and not a futures contract on a cryptocurrency what we can do is we can prosecute for fraud and manipulation we can't tell you how to trade it you can trade it however you want it doesn't have to be on a futures exchange you can, whatever you however you want to trade that thing you can trade it we don't regulate the trading of it but we do prosecute, prosecute for fraud and but manipulation. How do people know if,
0: if they are actually engaging in fraud activities or uh, because my Bitcoin was not entering a futures contract, right? But, was but, just...
1: but they, but they were, they were uh, in in that case, they were uh, getting people to to buy it. And they weren't taking the money and not and, and, and
0: taking the customers' gotcha. money. It's basically. kind of functioning like a futures contract.
1: Back no, it wasn't. It was it was just buying and selling. But they say invest in it. You can invest in. You can just buy something and invest in these things. But they were taking the customers' money. They weren't investing. As I recall the facts of the case, they weren't investing it; they were just taking their money. They weren't they were they weren't accurately representing what they were doing with the, the money that they were getting. They weren't like giving them these coins; they were buying boats and houses with their. So customers. these
0: have to be obviously very nuanced analysis for each case on a right. case by case. Right, right. So I gotta tell my computer science friends to be a little bit more careful <laughs> with their <laughs> cryptocurrencies. It, it,
1: well, well, so. Um, what we see a lot in there's the big uh uh cryptos there, there there's there's bitcoin and ether and uh yeah. things like that the ones that you hear about um which people are, know that we're, we're we're watching out for that but there's all these other cryptos that there's a lot of for lack of a better term pump and dump schemes that going on that um uh there's a lot there's a, a lot of activity that uh anecdotally we're hearing could be problematic from our enforcement perspective uh that people are not necessarily aware that there's a federal regulatory scheme that can cover it so it doesn't matter whether it's a futures contract or not that if it's a commodity which all these virtual currencies are if you're committing fraud if you're Pumping it, pumping it up and and telling your friends, oh, I got this thing that's really worthwhile or are you going on to some exchange and engaging in a system of bidding just to bid it up and, and it possibly could be uh, manip- trying to manipulate the price. Even if it's not a futures contract, we have authority to come after that person for fraud or manipulation. Yeah, that totally makes
0: sense. Uh, and, and you were just, sorry for interrupting you, about the decentralized technology that you were right. going So Right. So
1: block, blockchain, uh, the underlying you know, decentralized ledger technology, uh, underlying Bitcoin, um, there, there's a lot of talk about the potential for that technology to be of great assistance. Are These transactions we're talking about on futures markets, on swaps market, there's huge um, uh, record-keeping requirements, significant record-keeping requirements, reporting requirements. Uh, It's very important to have accurate records of the um, physical commodities, particularly the chain of custody and and the chain to make sure that um, the origin of the commodity is is appropriate. So the DLT, the distributed ledger technology, blockchain, whatever you want to call it, has significant potential uh, to uh, have a much more uh, uh, efficient, Faster system of keeping records. Right now, both on the security side and the commodity side, confirmations confirmations of transactions can take a day or two. Uh, we're always trying to reduce that time. Blockchain it's virtually instantaneous. Now, there's pros and cons of the technology, and it's still at a stage where we're not. We really haven't seen this implemented on a commercial scale yet. Uh, but certainly, we. We're open and hoping that um, this this could develop. It would also enable us if we're like if we have access to the blockchain uh, instead of having people keep their records and then send it to some repository and, and that just by everybody would get a, we would have access to the the blockchain just like anybody else. So it's got that potential. We're not quite there yet, but that's what. But we have a we have a program called Lab CFTC where we. Urge people to come in and explain the technologies to us, and we explain our regulatory system to them. On on the blockchain, it's it's it would be a record keeping and, and reporting uh, uh, requirements that they'd have to conform to, which which we
0: would work with them to accommodate. Totally makes sense. I guess the greater question here is. Uh, we often hear how technological and financial innovations challenge the existing regulatory framework. How do regulators keep up with those changes? I mean, will regulators always kind of be a step behind? Well, you know,
1: um, I have to be honest and say probably. <laughs> we, we are behind of, of necessity. I, I, I can tell you we have – it's not because we don't have very smart people you can take the smartest person who's at the forefront of technology development one day and say why don't you spend a year with us at the regulatory agency and you know in a week later they're not you know at the forefront anymore because they're inside the agency <laughs> we're doing something different so it's it's not a lack of talent or, or or whatever it is it's just we're sort of a little bit removed from the loop from where everything is happening we have as i as i mentioned we have set up this uh, office program called Lab CFTC, where we have dedicated people whose job it is to keep up with these developments and to be responsive. People who are develop, we are encouraging people who are developing these technologies who think they might uh, have some interface with our regulatory system. Please come in, explain us to your technology, and we'll explain to you our regulatory system. So we want to stay as close. We'll never get ahead of this curve. You won't. Gotcha. But we, we want to stay as close Close to it as we
0: possibly can yeah Uh, cftc chairman um, Giancarlo recently called for a light regulatory touch when it comes to distributed ledger technology and he said in a uh, in march at the dc blockchain summit that it is frequently tempting to apply a paternalistic hand on markets in order to steer them in desired directions or eliminate all risks a truly futile exercise so what was CFTC's reasoning and discussion behind? I guess we talked a little bit about how you want to stay as close as possible, but is there sort of a mentality that is saying we don't want to, um, kind of, muffle any type of potential technological innovation that could spring out, Sh- out of any. That
1: that that's that's a very important concern. Um, the difficulty from the regulatory perspective, and we we say one of the. Obstacles to the development of the technology has been regulatory uncertainty. Uh, we re- I re- we recognize that, but from the regulator's perspective, if you <coughs> excuse me, if you provide certainty too early, that act itself may steer the te- development of the technology in a in a particular direction. It, it, people will then we say if you do it this way, you're regulated, and do this way, you're not regulated, or here's what you have to do if you're technology attempts to achieve this, first thing people might say, well, we really don't want to have to deal with all those costs. Let's figure out some other way to doing it and avoid those costs. So all of a sudden, your, your regulation ends up steering the technology. The trick is to let the technology develop. And when it gets reasonably uh, mature. mature, to have a system that 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 can accommodate it, that can ensure that there's not undue risk. Uh, we we have to protect customers, we have to protect the public. So you want to give it room to develop, and that's going to entail some uncertainty about what the ultimate regulatory system is going to look like. But you don't want to uh, let it go off in some direction that might not be viable. So so we that's why I think the interactive program we have what I've mentioned lab CFTC is good we have communication back and forth and each each you know, the regulator and the, and the and the developers of the technology can be in communication they can sort of get where the parameters of where the agency might have concerns are uh, but we can't we can't come in too soon and try to nail down by regulation things that the technology must
0: or or, or or mustn't do but but that attitude seems to be quite different from the one that congress currently adopts towards tech giants right? i mean we're talking about breaking up facebook uh will, will google have a digital dictatorship i mean those are sort of the the headlines and the topics that people would engage in so i'm very curious do you think it's just because policymakers treat tech innovation differently from tech companies do you, you sort of separate them or do you sort of think um it's only because the tech those tech giants have already matured to a certain level that we 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 want to try to steer well, them in certain well the,
1: ways? S- the space the space that we're seeing who, who's developing these technologies the ones that i'm aware of at, at the initial stage are have not been the one like the, the giants that you've mentioned these these are uh, a lot of the the crypto technologies and the blockchain technologies the list of market participants and the people are doing these uh are are are, uh, are not the 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 giants right and so that that is something that uh, uh i don't think conflicts with anything any of the the the, the concerns in the, in that regard
0: totally makes sense awesome do do you foresee uh, decentralized technology seriously changing or even disrupting the current financial trading or regulatory frameworks. It's it's too soon. It's too soon to
1: say exactly how how um, the, the 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 these technologies will develop. But I don't think they will displace the existing framework. Uh, one of the things that we have heard um, from many institutional. Uh, potential institutional investors for these technologies to be mainstream and, and and were something that consumers and customers will use, that the entities, the intermediaries uh, uh, who would facilitate that want a regulated system. If you're a, if you're an institution who's going to intermediate cryptocurrency or, Treat crypto as an asset class that people are going to invest in or have it in everyday commerce. People want to have a system that has customer protection, that has entity protection. You want to know that the money laundering with unsavory characters is is being watched out for. You want to know that it's free from uh, fraud and manipulation. You want to know that if you put your money in some type of... Uh, Lockbox or, or or some type of
0: wallet, that the security. Uh, There's somebody uh, out there watching, helping you out you, for it.
1: I mean, why it, it would be if if you're a, a money manager, it would, maybe irresponsible of you you have a fiduciary duty. And, 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 of course. And, so if you're going to have your one asset in a wallet and one asset in, in in a in a in a in a in a bank or or something else that has all this security your customers are gonna want equal protection wherever they they have that asset. So, the institutional investors, for this to go mainstream, I really believe, and we're seeing it, we're seeing companies come to us and say, we want, we we have a business plan for these crypto technologies. We think crypto is the way to go, but we want it regulated, and we want want to come under your regulation because, uh, frankly, that provides us and our potential customers with the insurances they need to know that their money's, Protect. safe
0: Yeah, yeah. So CFTC doesn't really have a thesis or a vision in terms of saying, oh, 20, 30 years down the road, this is kind of our prediction and we're we're working towards. The, so there's not a definitive or, or relative range of vision that you already established and, and your regulatory framework currently is not Correct. being decided by that
1: correct our our regulatory framework we need to be able to if the market goes in that direction if somebody has that vision if that's a vision that gets widely adopted we want to accommodate our regulatory system to them to 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 work for them we, right. we're not going to compromise our principles in of terms course. of safety and soundness but we want it to be able to work in that context and recognize any unique characteristics and and have it a, a, adaptable.
0: Totally makes sense. Yeah. Before we end our interview, I want to ask you a couple questions about your personal experience because you were an undergrad um, at Princeton, right. and you studied physics. So I'm very curious as to how you think your time here impacted your career trajectory, some of the defining experiences you had here, uh, how they shaped you into the person you are today. Well. Uh, I I had the advantage um,
1: when I came here, I had advanced placement in physics, and I had a lot of physics in high school. And uh, so when I got here, I had the luxury of being able to um, take a lot of electives. In addition to my basic science, I had advanced placement in science, uh, in math and physics. So I I started taking a bunch of courses in the history department, uh, and... uh, elsewhere electives. And I found it totally eye-opening. And so I had really two interests uh, when I was here. One was in science, the hard science, physics, and another was in law and politics. I took courses at Woodrow Wilson School uh, and in the history department. Um, And I really had multiple interests. And Princeton really fed all of that. And I when I when I was trying to figure out for a, a career, um, do I go into physics or astrophysics, which was I was particularly interested in? I, I wanted to be broader. I, I wanted to be able to use all of that rather than focus on an, on, on a narrow part. And so I ended up going in, 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 into law law school because I thought that that would al- allow me the the broadest possible career. It, it could take a number of directions where I could use all of the, all that all those rather than the the narrower science, uh, and uh, I've, I've been extremely fortunate, uh, and it, and it worked out, and I think Princeton was, was absolutely integral in that, and so students today, I would mean, just have this incredibly broad range of resources here, and I, I think it's, it's a, it's a great opportunity in finance, and what we're talking about, the world of finance, um, could provide an opportunity for all those. I mean, if you want to go the quantitative route, you can go quantitative skills. If you, but it, it's also human psychology, markets, or psychology, behavioral finance. It's a uh, history. I mean, you look at the history of the markets and global trade, you, and there's so much that go into the financial world, c- combining all these disciplines. Um, and and so, and Princeton provides a great basis and, and ground for sort of exploring all
0: that and trying to put it all
1: together somehow.
0: We saw that early in your career you worked on nuclear regulation, environmental issues. Uh, you were the Deputy Assistant Secretary at Department of Energy's Office of Environmental Management. Uh, how was that experience and what made you decide to switch into financial regulation later? Well, so uh, uh,
1: nuclear was a nat- natural outgrowth of my physics. I wanted to do law and science. Um, and. When I got out of law school in the 1980s, the US was expecting, it was shortly after the Three Mile Island accident, we were expecting at the time perhaps a nuclear renaissance, uh, that nuclear Three Mile Island would be sort of a, a a pause, and then after that was put behind us, all sorts of new nuclear power plants would get licensed and nuclear was gonna have a growth pattern and this is gonna be a uh, a growth area, and it wasn't so much that I was like a pro-nuclear person, but being a lawyer in the nuclear field, there was going to be a, bit, a lot of business. <laughs> uh, so, but it didn't happen that way. You know, the nuclear the nuclear market ended up being pretty much steady state. There've been maybe one or two new nuclear plants in thirty years, and so it was an in, it was an industry where there was really basically no growth. So I, I had to I had to look for something else. <laughs> that 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 happens in the business world. That's the reality, folks. Uh, uh, you're subject to market forces no matter what your uh, intellectual interests are. So, but I was energy. I mean, new, being involved in nuclear energy, I had an energy background, and I was fortunate, lucky. You know, it's one of these things. And this is the other great lesson in life, that for every. Um, every challenge and every uh, risk that you either decide to take or the, every risk that's forced upon you, like you know, stagnating career field, sort of kicks you and say, I gotta find something else to do. And I was fortunate enough to use my nuclear background to get a position where I could start looking into other energy issues. And at the time it was, I worked for the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. We were investigating the uh, gasoline market uh, was it too concentrated they want and I, I had an experience in the energy field through my nuclear and so I was able to start getting into oil crude oil and gasoline and people say if you really want to understand gasoline markets why gasoline prices are what they are you have to understand commodity prices and commodity markets and it's not the model that this country is on is no longer oil companies control gasoline prices it's it's it, the integrated oil companies don't exist anymore. OPEC doesn't even control the world price. It has influence on it. It's a commodity. Oil's now a commodity. It's traded on commodity markets. You have to understand commodity markets. I said, oh, well, that, that's interesting. <laughs> um, trading, you know, I, and I think my, my my quantitative background and sort of trading, is it's a highly quantitative discipline, uh, which I knew nothing about at the time. Um, I said, "Well, this looks like a, uh, something interesting," and so I ended up, you know, getting into the commodity markets and 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 ended up sort of making a whole career switch. So it it, it turned out it turned out it, it's been a great um, a field to, field to be. in. I came at it sort of tangentially, and because my primary field that I was in sort of petered out in terms of <laughs> where the industry was going and the le- opportunities for a lawyer in, in an industry that is not expanding. So. Uh, that's how I sort of got where I
0: am. It's been great. Um, from 2013 to 2018, you were a partner and co-chair of the Futures Interior practice at law firm Wilmer Hale, uh, where former FBI director Robert Mueller was also a partner at before being appointed as special counsel for the Russian investigation. And um, so am very curious um, as to your experience there in the private sector and also with uh, special counsel Mueller.
1: Well that was great Bo- both of those i i i um most of my career has been in government but i did i did spend the last five years out in the private sector private practice of law which was invaluable i, I enjoyed it and actually advising clients uh, i i think is really important and i think people criticize the revolving door um, but i personal experience it through people you know, washington gets a a lot of unfair A lot of criticism, some of it appropriate, some of it not, but one thing I think is underappreciated is the value of people in government with private sector experience. You much better appreciate the problems uh, of the private sector as a government um, official if you've sort of seen what those problems are, and not everybody is coming to the government wants just out of regulation. There's actually legitimate questions about how the regulations apply and where they apply in these particular circumstances. And we try to make the regulations fit as best we can. So that perspective is important. doesn't always control, but it's important to have. Similarly, you want people in the private sector who've been in government to understand why the government's doing things. So I think ha- having multiple experiences at each stage in your career makes you a better whatever you are. If you're a better advocate in the private sector, you've been in government, you're better uh, person in government trying to formulate public policy. If you've been in the private sector, working with the uh, former FBI director Mueller before he became special counsel uh, was just a, a great experience. We, it again, it was on cryptocurrency. We had a team. Our, our firm, as I think is typical these days, <laughs> um, potential a client want you know potential uh, business opportunity in the crypto space, you're dealing with multiple issues. You have to deal with money laundering issues. You have to deal with securities law issues. You have to do commodities laws issues. And the director, from his former national security experience and general law enforcement experience, and, and seniority and, and wiseness and sageness, uh, was was uh, was uh, the leader on that team. And, and I was fortunate enough to be on the team in my in my area, which was the commodity regulation. So we worked as a team uh, on, on
0: on advising uh, uh, clients in, in that, which was a, which, which was a great experience. A- anything interesting about him that that was memorable uh, about that case about Mueller? Well, just uh, I I can
1: in, in my uh, experience, just his his reputation for integrity and uh, uh, wisdom is well justified. I mean, <laughs> he 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 exudes integrity. Uh, uh, so <laughs> that uh, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, um, you done energy, um, you've you've worked on energy related issues, uh, financial regulation, and now a CFTC. What's your big, biggest takeaway about the financial market or the energy sector after all those years of observation, analysis, as a policymaker and as a um, private sector practitioner? Um, what What's the most important lesson that you think you've learned? Well, that the risk management, a uh
1: speaking narrowly in terms of my professional responsibilities right now, obviously energy sector is really important to to the United States, but in terms of what I'm doing now, um, how important a robust and effective risk management uh, system is to the energy industry. The energy industry is subject to such volatility. It's a boom and bust industry um, that the tools – Having tools where they can manage that risks and get some stability in terms of planning and pricing, um, is not just critical for a company, but it's critical for the you know, ultimate consumers of of the energy stability and oil prices stability and gas prices stability and electricity and heating heating and, and for consumers as well as U.S. industry that this, these risk management tools how do you finance a big project okay who pays for it ultimately and how do you finance it to have predictable cash flows in and out to make the necessary long-term investments, you have to have some type of predictability. If people are gonna put up the tremendous amount of capital it takes to develop a new technology for oil and to get a return on that capital, you have to have some predictability in terms of cash flows in and out. And these risk management tools through the futures markets and through the swaps markets don't make it totally predictable, but they take out some of that uncertainty and they can help make it more predictable. And until I really got into this business, it's not apparent. We started out, you're talking about, you know, what, what do you do? People don't see what you do. Uh, so this is this is what we do. It's all this behind-the-scenes thing that's done in finance departments, and you talk to risk managers and these companies, and it doesn't make the headlines until it goes wrong, until somebody, right. you know, these markets, you know, get manipulated or, or, or there's speculation gets out of control or whatever it is. But that's, that's I, I think, a really important takeaway, that, that these markets, the markets that we regulate, uh, are absolutely critical to the health and vitality of these, of these industries. And so we need to get it right. That's just the, the importance of getting it right for the
0: industries as well as the public. And speaking of risk, uh, I remember talking to you this morning and you said um, after the Dodd-Frank Act, after 10 years after the financial crisis, the risk has sort of lowered but become more concentrated in the financial sector.
1: Correct. I, I think that we have gotten a much better handle on the risks. There's more clearing, the clearing where rather than have party A directly exposed to party B, it goes through a clearinghouse. And that, that risk in the clearinghouse is mutualized, is shared by all the members in the clearinghouse. The clearinghouse becomes the party to all those transactions on one side. And if one side's defaults, um, ultimately the, the money that that one side puts up first gets eaten up. But if if that's not enough, then, then it gets shared in the uh, in the clearinghouse, so that provides a backstop and much better guarantee than if A is exposed to B. So you don't if Lehman Brothers falls, all the dominoes necessarily don't fall. If Lehman falls and it had been cleared, the clearinghouse would absorb the risk. So you have much more stable financial system when you have clearing. A lot more swaps are cleared now. Many many more swaps are cleared. Trading, we have the competition that I mentioned in the trading of these, where people post prices competitively, and you get multiple bids before you enter into one of these transactions or offers. So pricing is better, but there's only a few banks and the large banks who are doing a lot of a lot of providing the money for the clearing, right? Clearing services. Five banks have 80% of the clearing services. Five banks are counterparties to or percent of the trades. So I, I'm, that is a source of concern that this is just concentrated now in too few banks. So we have more competition, but not enough competitors.
0: Um, the name of our podcast is Policy Punchlines. At the end of the show, I really have to ask you, what's the punchline here? It could be for the financial market, for regulation, for policy, um, maybe a contrarian thought you may have anything well regulation matters good regulation matters <laughs>
1: is is what if, if what one of the, one of the one of the takeaways is good regulation matters it's something
0: that uh, we work we work really hard uh, hard to achieve Awesome. Thank you so much for telling us. There's uh, so many fascinating insights on on CFTC, blockchain, your personal experiences here. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Tiger. appreciate it very much. Thank you. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please follow us on iTunes, Spotify, uh, Twitter, actually, uh, at Policy Punchline, uh, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Uh, Rate and review us. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.